HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Thank you. 
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half of your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are coming to you from Inaka with Chef Nikki Nakayama. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for having us in the most unassuming slash best restaurant. <laughs> we can say at least on the block, right? And then we can expand out awesome. to, to, uh, to where it is probably one of the best restaurants in the city, if not America. Um, so... There's so much to talk about. I, I literally, I don't think I've had more questions for this. I have two pages of single type stuff. I wish I took <laughs> this good of notes in college. But um, That's amazing. I just, I want to start with, um, you know, we're sitting here in this temple that you built mm-hmm. to Kaiseki, to cooking, to everything, and you know, in a in a type of cuisine that can be led by tradition or devotion to like the rules and things like that. And that can be sort of your guiding light. What you say is that you were led by your own intuition. Right. Um, and that cooking is one thing that you can completely trust what you're doing. So why in something that can be seen as so rigid, do you allow sort of like this, fr- not, I don't want to say free form, but your own intuition to guide you? The one thing, well, one of the main things that I love about Kaiseki is because so much of it is a philosophy rather than um, a strict interpret what we're doing is a very loose interpretation like you said but the it's more of an idea mm-hmm. like all these it, there's a structure to it but within the structure what is so amazing about it is you can sort of adjust the structure to match the things that make sense for me personally for example in the in initially when I started Ennaka, the idea was being trying to create a restaurant um, that with the along the lines of the experience that you would have in Japan. Mm-hmm. And then in time, I started to think about it. Well, Kaiseki's real philosophy is about trying to um, showcase what is close to you, what is near to you. And then I was thinking, well, we're importing all these things from Japan, mm-hmm. and how is that being local and really sticking to the rules of Kaiseki? Then it started to make sense for us to sort of alter course and start to implement this whole idea of California into our kaiseki because here we are in Los Angeles, California. We should present food that is somewhat. When you're eating it here, you realize, okay, I'm not in Japan, mm-hmm. but this is there's some ideas and there's some techniques and some flavorings that all come from a Japanese heart, but it's all interpreted with Japanese visions and Japanese lens, but then the ingredients may not necessarily be Japanese. So, the ingredients aren't the only things that come from Los Angeles in this restaurant. You also come from Los Angeles, right? Right. Right? Um, Where did you grow up? 
I grew up in uh, K-Town area. Okay. That's fine. It'll ring twice. It's fine. Okay. It's not that professional in this show. Okay. <laughs> um, so you grew up in K-Town. Right. And which then, arguably might be the hottest spot to eat in America. If you talk to like all the chefs, they're like, oh, you got to go to K-Town LA. Yeah, there's a lot of great places in K-Town now. When I was growing up, there was a lot less... Um, there were as many restaurants. Yeah. So I, I only... We were only there until I was in about 12th grade. I mean, um, when I was 12 and 6th grade, and then we moved out to the San Gabriel Valley. Oh, man. Yeah, so there's a lot of ethnic food out there. A lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff. Now, food important big in your family growing up? Food important big. um, Not necessarily very fancy food, just food in general was big in our family. Like, we really enjoyed eating. But the idea of cooking for yourself and and eating things like that. Mom cooked, dad cooked? Mom cooked, and my parents um, have been in the seafood business since I was about 10. Yes. So it was, I was, you know, recalling the other day to our staff how for dinner, on several occasions, I remember just getting a Dungeness crab. It's like, here, <laughs> dinner, and then all of us had and one Dungeness crab each, and we we're like, that, okay, that's dinner. <laughs> that could be every night. If that could be every night. <laughs> like, each of us had one, and then we, like, hold it up and take a picture, it's like, hey... So you were doing the uh, holding the dying Dungeness crab seafood photo trend before years before. <laughs> all right, all of us had one and we'd hold it up and then it's like, well, how do we eat it? And then I, my dad would just like break off the leg and start like, here, use your teeth. <laughs> and then we all bit on it and we're all like <laughs> eating. Um, so your father. Uh, owned the seafood business. Your mother worked in there. Right. So was it a family? It was, it was a family, a family affair. Right. Um, were you encouraged to get into food? Did you did you know at a young age you're like, this is a family business. I want to get into it. I want to be a chef. It was funny because uh, when they started their their business now, I was 12, and I remember going there and working in the warehouse. My brother was like, oh, you know, your job is to sort of fill out the order of what people are going to order. Mm-hmm. And then I remember being in that warehouse. It was freezing cold it smelled like fish and my whole idea was like i'm never gonna do this business i gotta get out i gotta get out out. it smells like fish and i don't want to be in a cold like place and this is i I need to find another career it's like i'm not gonna peddle fish for a living but i'm still peddling fish yes we always go back to where (laughs) right it's it's so funny how like you go i'm never gonna do this and you get older and you're like I'm doing this. Right. I was like... Um, but you did go to culinary school. And you went to culinary school, um, not in Paris, not in upstate New York, but in glorious Pasadena. Yes. I did go to... Um, the, the school was called the Southern California School of Culinary Arts, and that was before it became a Cordon Bleu program. And what year is this? This was 96. Okay. So food had not quite reached its, like, mainstream prominence. And your parents were sort of into the idea, half into the idea. My mom was initially like, no, you can't. It, you know what's so funny about my mom? She's always suggesting things. And then when I say I'm going to do it, then she finds reason why I shouldn't do it. This is the most <laughs> hilarious thing about her. Because when she visited me in Japan, she's like, you know what? There's the food scene here. This, before culinary school, yeah. I actually went to Japan after high school for a bit. And then she's like, the food scene here is amazing, and you should think about going to culinary school here because this is like something you should really learn. You know, Japan has such a wonderful food scene. Then I was thinking, oh, it would be amazing to go in Japan, but then there's like this whole equivalent of like this 
Japanese TOEFL that you have to pass in order to get into some sort of... I mean, it's a hierarchy. Yeah. And then you have to, like, be able to, like, read and write, like, 100% Japanese, and that's not my forte. No. Growing up in Los Angeles. So I thought, oh, it would probably make sense to come back to the States and do it. Yeah. So I told my mom, hey, you know, maybe I'll go to the culinary school that's nearby. And she's like... What are you thinking? You can't go into this restaurant <laughs> business. You do you know how hard it is to be on your feet all day long, and plus you're too short. But I feel like uh, you're the type of person. If someone says you can't do it, you're gonna do it. Yeah, that that's always been my thing. It's like if somebody says I can't do it, it's like why? Why can't I do it? I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna show you that I can't do it. So you go to culinary school. Mm-hmm. Did you? What did you take away from there? Well, the first day when I was in culinary school, I was like, what am I doing here? I can't believe I'm cutting carrots into little strips and little chunks of <laughs> squares and dices. What, what am I doing with my life? But the greatest thing about cooking is the more I did it, the more I loved it. Mm. It was like, I'm, I've always been, I love cooking because there's that, there's something about it that is very instant gratifying. Mm-hmm. Like, I have an idea, and I go out and I do it, and then in 30 minutes later, there's a result. And something about that is very satisfying to me, versus waiting months and months and months for something oh. to happen. Unless you're doing fermentation. True. Or <laughs> That's a good point. So you finished school. I know you spent some time at uh, Takawa, which is this famous Brentwood sushi place, but then you start thinking about Japan again, right? Yes. Um, I actually went to culinary school with a mind that I would go back to Japan after I graduated. So mom, so you, so you could, mom, yeah. what are you doing? mom, this is for you, right? Right. It's like, I, I have a plan. I, it's not just, you know, I'm not just going to go to culinary school and do something else after. It's like, I have a plan. I'm going to go back to Japan. I'm going to go like really train and learn Japanese food. Did you always want to do Japanese cuisine? I think... Uh, there, there's a part of me that has always loved a European cuisine. Sure. But there's some really deep level of understanding that I have for Japanese food that just, it really makes sense to me. I remember walking into Takao restaurant after having done a little bit, a few months in an Italian restaurant. Um, my first thing when I walked into Takao restaurant was, oh my God, it's the smell of dashi. And I felt like I was home. I mean, home is where the heart is, right? Right. Um, now, you had family in Japan as well, right? Yes, yes. Um, and you were thinking about Japan. Did, did you? How much did you actually know about Japanese food? And I asked that being like, it's like you grew up in a Japanese household and you worked in a Japanese restaurant, things like that. But did you get to Japan and, and were like, oh, I don't know anything? Yes, of course. It was like... You know, growing up here, we don't, there's only so many ingredients that were available at the time, and we because this is the late '90s. It, right. It's not like today. Right. It's not like today where it's just like, oh, I need like a, a bushel of shisha leaves, like, right? I, like this. It's right. just like everything. Yeah. You know. Even like the selections were so limited back then, and then it was like when I went to Japan, it's like, what is this mitsuba thing that I've never had in the states? And it's just like a completely different uh, approach to cooking, and all, and then the ingredient was so. I love that um, so much of the food is ingredient-driven. I mean, it's all ingredients-driven. Yes, yes, yes. So everything that's made is based on the ingredients that's available. Yeah. And to have it so fresh, for example, the crab was just caught today. 
you know, a couple of hours away, and we're eating that tonight. Do you have photos from Japan of you holding up crab? I don't have photos of okay. crab. Okay. Unfortunately. Don't, unfortunately not. Right. Um, <laughs> but importantly as well is that you go to Japan, um, and that's, is this the first time you had, you just, you hear about Kaiseki, had you known about Kaiseki, or, or was it like you sort of heard about it, like a cool band, but then you went to Japan and you're like, oh cool, like they're pl- it's playing, like you can go to a show. It was actually uh, the summer before I went to culinary school, I went before I came back, right. I was at my cousin's place, and then they had served me this full-on Kaiseki meal that they served their guests. And I was so amazed by it because the idea of... Visually, it's really stunning because they lay it all out from the beginning. So it's like you're sitting down and then all of a sudden right in front of you, there's like 17 different dishes of varying sizes and colors and ingredients. And it's just happening all at once. And it's like, wow, what is this? And it's not a progression. It's, it's not like course after course. There's You could do it as a progression. The very fancy ones do it as a progression. Uh, and, in sets of threes, mm. whereas like if you were to go to an inn, a Japanese inn, they do it. They lay it out for you mostly all at once, with some things that are meant to be hot served a little later. Mm. Yeah. Um, does the inn still exist? Yes. Yes. Shout it. Where is it? Where, if, I, if in, I want to go, maybe I want to go on vacation. It's in a city called Niigata, and uh, it's Tokamachi City, and it's. I would. I always related to how LA is to Big Bear, so it would be like the Big Bear area oh, okay. in uh, relations to Tokyo. It's very famous for rice and sake, and it's also known for heavy snow. Everything you said sounds amazing. Yes, it's it's an amazing. Place. Um, so you were there for a few years. Mm-hmm. What is? I mean, you, we could probably spend the rest of the time talking about what you learned there. But what did you take away from there as something that you've carried with you today? I think the most important thing that I was able to learn is what Japanese food should really taste like. It's like, this is what is really authentic Japanese. This is what the heart of Japanese food is. And it's, I can't, every time I cook, it's, I'm always reminded of that, those tastes that I have there. When, and... Understanding tastes, beginning to understand kaiseki. Mm-hmm. How to when you started to really get kaiseki, and you know it's traditional and it's balanced, and there's obviously just hundreds of years of just of the service and the sort of the, the theatrics of it. Mm-hmm. Was at that time, did you start going like maybe I want to do it a little differently? And did you say that to anyone, or were you like I can't say that to anyone here because they will look at me that I've gone crazy? And I thought. I would. I always have loved tasting menus. Um, when I was at Takao, and then I saw him do tasting menus, it was, it was always so exciting because there's so many variations to the food that you're going to eat as a diner. And when I experienced kaiseki, it was like, oh, this makes sense to eat like this because the variety itself is so exciting. It's like an event. It's so fun. And then I thought, I honestly thought that I wouldn't want to make a very traditional kaiseki mm. restaurant because it's it didn't feel very genuine to me. Right. Like I felt like, oh yeah, you know, I'm ra- I'm born and raised in LA and I'm here in Japan learning about Japanese food. There's only so much of it that I can really capture. And bring back with And you. bring back. And then to falsely present it as like, hey, this is my background. I've been doing this forever. It, it didn't feel, it felt very disingenuous. And then I thought, 
the best thing that I could do is interpret this whole experience from my perspective, and whatever comes out is going to be genuinely something that I create that's from my experience. So I can't help but put this American influence into it because, hey, I grew up here, I, I know the food here, and when I taste something, if something's missing, it might be something that just naturally comes from my own experience. Yeah, and so when did you know it was time to leave Japan and return to LA? Um, I was there for about three years, and I thought I have learned as much as I possibly can at that at my uh, cousin's inn, and the timing felt right to sort of come back to LA and find something to do that was going to continue my education in culinary. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a short musical break. We are going to talk about your time in LA and the building of this small restaurant that no one, that I think it's one to watch, but Anaka, just, you, you, you stay tuned. Uh, we have a live performance uh, from one of our favorite bands here on Snacky Tunes live on heritageradionetwork.org. funny what you do to me you're my honey as far as i can see then you told me that you found someone new ain't it funny what time can do Smoke, pop a pill or two. 
drink some whiskey and eat a big old steak too. Ain't it funny what love can do? Yeah, ain't that funny? Ain't that funny? What you do? What you do? It ain't that funny, cause I'm so blue. I could drink a million beers or two, but I'll never be over you. I think I'll have a drink with a girl named Sue, but I'll never be over you. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Chef Nikki Nakayama in the beautiful Inaka. Um, so you left Tokyo, mm-hmm. left Japan. You're back in LA. You've just spent all this time doing kaiseki, and you want to open up your first restaurant. What was your first restaurant in LA? My first restaurant in LA was a sushi restaurant. Not where I thought you were going to go with this. <laughs> but, and what year is this? This is... Uh, 1999. Okay, so I first came to your restaurant, I'm going to say two years ago, Mm -hmm. so 2015. That was the first time I heard of Kaiseki, and I've been living in the food world for my entire life. So I'm assuming in 1999, a lot of people didn't know what Kaiseki was, right? Right, right. Is that why you opened up a sushi restaurant? Was that your own decision? Was there someone, anyone else involved? Uh, My parents actually helped shape that vision, uh, because... I think the idea... Was your mom like, you should open up a Kaiseki restaurant? And you're like, I'm going to open up a Kaiseki restaurant. Your mom went, maybe you should do a sushi restaurant. <laughs> Something like that. No. I, I didn't feel ready to open anything close to a Kaiseki restaurant. Mm-hmm. Like, I loved all these elements of it. And I, I think with everything in life, when you learn things, it takes time for it to sort of put be put together, even in your own mind, how it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, back then it was like everything was new everything was still I was still in the process of learning things and I don't think for lack of a better word the the cake was baked yet sure right so still adding the ingredients right it was just still something that was someday it was in my mind that oh someday that would happen but I wasn't ready then for it Um, and the name of the restaurant was Uh, Azami Sushi and how did it do how was it it was. It took a long time to get it really into a place where I felt like this was gonna be okay. Because initially, when we first opened, it was just like, oh, let's just open a restaurant, and it was like Thursday. Let's. What day should we open? Let's open Thursday, and then we just rolled up the gates and opened, and we all just stood there. I mean, how did you get the word out about a restaurant in 1999? I had no idea how to get a word out. It right. was just like just. We'll just open and see what happens. But the word did get out. Yes, it took it took a bit. It took a bit and um, define a bit. It Month, took about years. three years to really get it to a wow. place where I felt like okay, our business is good. I gotta say, if it took three years to get a restaurant going today, <laughs> it wouldn't. It would be two other restaurants by that time. How did you hang on for so long? I think it was there was this feeling like I can't let this fail mm-hmm. because if. If anything, there's always this point where, like, well, if it came down to it, I would be the server. I would cook. I would wash the dishes. I would do every single position in this restaurant if I have to, to keep it going. So that was the mentality that I had. And then it was just, you know, building it slowly. And 
building it slowly and letting it happen. Uh, and luckily, we were able to pull together a very strong neighborhood support. Mm. And there was uh, we had so many great customers that still visit me today. That's amazing. And there's just like building of this relationship and getting to know what guests really like to eat and just a constant learning from mistakes. I mean, learning from mistakes and customer service and a neighborhood spot, I really think are the three pillars of a successful restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, so at what point during the run of this restaurant did you start thinking that Kaiseki and the next move and like going back to like what you sort of like was inside your heart and what you really wanted to do. I actually toyed with a little bit of kaiseki on the menu okay. uh, back then. We had a five course and a seven course, and it was and it's, it was called kaiseki on the menu. No, it was just called tasting menu. It was a, a chef's choice tasting menu. Okay. And then basically it was built because people knew that. It's like I know what a chef's right, menu. Right, 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 right. So we just built it off of. Um, uh, the Kaiseki uh, philosophies and then the structure. And back then it was, uh, even then I thought whoever ordered it, if I could each time, if they did come back and eat it, that we would try to find something different for them to eat. I mean, this is something that is absolutely crazy and amazing to say to me, is that people who come and have your Kaiseki menu have a different menu every time. Well, we try. We try. I mean, I, I would say as a diner, is that no, no one expects that. But, like, no, I mean, it's, it's, I would never expect, I would expect, you know, there to be, like, three or four staples and then maybe something new because of the season, something like that. But there's that story in Chef's Table where you say that somebody came back in, in the chef um, from the first restaurant you worked in, uh, came back in, in the same week and had two completely different meals. Mm -hmm. Why? Like, wh why put that incredible challenge upon your shoulders? Well, I mean, I, I already feel that when our guests come, we're already taking away some of their um, rights to choose anything from a menu. Sure. So I feel like it's our responsibility to provide a, a dining experience that's new and different. And I think part of the fun of dining in this style where you don't have a menu is that element of surprise. So... If you were to come back and we we're able, still able to surprise you on some level, it's, it makes the dining experience feel like a new one. Like I mean, you've gone to a new restaurant, it's a different thing, and I think that's... But if people have a favorite, can they ask for a favorite? Like, yes, like, yes, of okay, course. Okay, okay. Of course, Because sometimes you dream about, it's like, right. it's like I, I've been dreaming about yes. this cod, like this. Yes. So, Azami's done. Azami's done. You shut it down. Mm -hmm. You start doing pop-ups, right? A little bit, yes. A little bit. Um, and was this the start of the 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 cake? Maybe the batter's made, and maybe right. you're slowly sliding into the oven. Like, how did the pop-ups go? And were you at this point officially saying in your mind and calling it kaiseki? Um, I was in my mind calling it kaiseki, but still calling it chef's tasting. And the thing was, when I had sold the sushi restaurant. In my mind, I was like, I'm going to travel. I'm going to go and see the rest of the world and, you know, maybe work for somebody else and learn more things. Then my sister was like, hey, I just found this space and, you know, it's perfect. Let's do something together. And it's it's going to be ready in a month. And I'm like, what? Yeah. And then she's like, you figure out what we're going to do with it. And then I was so... You're like, thank you. Yes. Thanks I was, so I was much. I really mad at her for it. And then... 
I was like, I can't believe I'm stuck here doing this place. And so I was like, fine, if I have to do this, you know, the daytime, we'll just do this deli. And then I was driving to work on the way to work and I listening to NPR. They talked about this restaurant in Philadelphia. Actually, it's more in the suburbs. And it was about how the, the chef had gone back to his hometown with his wife. And then they had a deli in the morning. And then at nighttime, they did this um, chef's table. And it's one of the hardest reservations to get in the country. Amazing. So I was like, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll do a chef's table thing at nighttime. And, you know, because I already actually had this Ennaka space. Uh, I had secured the space already, but I was waiting for all the permits to come out. Sure. It was a whole, like, two, three-year process. So I was like, fine, I'll do that. And then at nighttime, I'll just start practicing my ideas on people who would want to come and eat. So now you have everything. You've, you've lived in Japan. You did the you know did the culinary school. You worked at a sushi place. You had your own sushi place. You understood kaiseki from the source, but you started to develop a unique take, which we'll call California kaiseki. Mm-hmm. What is California kaiseki? How close does it resemble to Kyoto kaiseki? And what type of ingredients were you allowing yourself to use? Um, I was. I thought okay. There's some staples that make a meal very Japanese. Sure. So all the ingredients that do that, I have to keep on the menu. But in terms of what I can do to interpret different tastes or add different tastes to it is basically something that I felt should be really representative of my own experience. So doing California Kaiseki, for example, we have a pasta course on the menu, which is you're not going to find in a Kaiseki restaurant in Japan. Which is also become a signature dish. It has, yes. What is the dish? It's uh, our abalone pasta. It's delicious. Thank you. Um, but was there any part of your mind that was saying like, you can't do this, the family's going to come and they're going to freak out, where you're going like, no, they're going to come and they're going to love it I'm going to show them. <laughs> it was more like, no, I'm going to do it and they're going to love it and I'm going to show them because when I thought about that abalone pasta dish, it was like, this is exactly the kind of food I want to make because there's parts of it that's so Japanese and there's parts of it that is that isn't and it's like right in right in this weird sweet spot right in the middle where it can be one thing and it can be another and that's exactly the identity that I have because yes I'm Asian and I grew up in America was born and raised here but there's a part of me that feels like I totally understand Western culture like to this level that that's what I've been taught. That's what I learned in school. And then if you ask me about Japanese culture very deeply, I don't know. And I can't pretend like I know because sure. that's not my education. So it's like there's this really weird spot right in the middle where I belong, where I get to take something that's really awesome from Japan and then something that's really awesome that's American and I get to put it together. And that's my experience growing up here and it's all represented in this dish yeah but the beauty's in the weird spot yeah right so the beauty like... the new stuff the exciting stuff is in that weird spot um and the uniqueness um so you're doing the japanese deli mm-hmm. all the permits come in for anaka right what was it how long did it take to open what was it like when it first opened did people right away or just like was it they just got it it was funny because back in the deli it was like where we'd grown accustomed to doing about 
there was only 14 seats sure. in this restaurant. And we're, we'd grown accustomed to doing about like four tables, five tables, four tables a night, two, two tops. And then we got Anaka, and then there's like nine tables, and there's like five, four, you know, four, four, four tops and five two tops. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, we have 19 people. What am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> right? Those extra five are a killer. Right. You know? And then I had, I mean, like, seriously, I opened this restaurant without so much thinking of like, oh, I should set a time for seating. Oh, I yeah. should, there's like all these things. And then our first initial guests that came to eat were like dining like three, four hours for their dinner because it was taking us so long to just get everything out. There wasn't enough of a system. Yeah. But so thankfully, you, we've like come to this place where like, okay, we can get people out in about two and a half hours. And you also... You also play. Like five hours. You're like, dude, you have you can't you don't have to go home. <laughs> right. But you my, can't stay my here. My brother's like, your dinner is taking way too long. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You're like, you're, you're like, shit no, together. actually, brother, you say congratulations on opening this restaurant. <laughs> um, but with the California Kaiseki and 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 you know you're still playing to the seasons, but the but the and I know you do traditional restaurants, but I know that you also work with uh, Doc to Dish. Which is giving you fish you don't normally see, right. like, on the plate for Kaiseki restaurants. So, even though it's very traditional, you're using ingredients you would never find in any other Kaiseki type of restaurant. Right. Um, and so, have people come in who run their own tradition? Have people flown in from Japan and come here and been like, what is this? And do you think that this type of restaurant would succeed back in, in Kyoto or something like that? I feel like, um, for the most part, even people from Japan come and dine um, at our restaurant. They are, I feel very supported by even that crowd because I think they understand what it is that we're trying to do. And then we do make it a purpose to explain to them that, yes, uh, this is kaiseki in philosophy and in theory, but so much of it is determined by ingredients as what kaiseki should really be about. Mm -hmm. And because we are in California, we like to represent that this is a California-style kaiseki. Yeah. So um, for the most part, even people from Japan are very supportive of that. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's just once in a while we'll get people who have visited Japan that aren't necessarily Japanese that come and ask us, why aren't we doing a very <laughs> traditional Japanese Goes kaiseki. to Kaiseki Kyoto <laughs> restaurant once. <laughs> right. Thinks they're an expert, right? Right. They're like, well, why isn't it like this? And why don't you have that on the menu? Like, why do listen, you have pasta? I was in uh, Kyoto in January, and I know that I'm meeting at your restaurant in August, but it wasn't like it. It's like... All right, there's a lot of things wrong with your statement right there. <laughs> um, but in addition to the ingredients and the principle, it's also women-run. You and your partner, Cal, run it. It's, right. you know, I mean, one could say you're the one of the only, if not the only, women-run Kaiseki restaurant, if not America in the world. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing. We feel very fortunate, and um, in all honesty, we, Carol and I often talk about it, and we're... We don't know how this would be in Japan, like if we could succeed in the way that we have here in LA, in the same way that we, that would be in Japan. Because I think the society as a whole in Japan is very, still very uncomfortable with women doing jobs that, that men traditionally do. So um, having said that, I think 
this success that we are experiencing is definitely a result of having being in Los Angeles, and then we're really appreciative of that. I mean, I'm appreciative of you doing the food <laughs> that you're doing. Um, so, what's next? I mean, you're full every night, right? Yes. For the foreseeable future. Yes. <laughs> um, where do you go from here? Where do you go from here with the ton of accolades and the nominations and 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 being fully accepted and proving the family wrong. <laughs> um, what's next? We have a lot of fun things on our um, agenda. A lot of it being, I'm really interested in doing a lot more themed menus. Mm-hmm. For example, we did the whole 100% California ingredient kaiseki dinner. Was that tough? That was really hard because we were not able to use any ingredients that were imported. So I'm sure you use a lot of Dr. Dish fish on that, right? We had to use a lot of Dr. Dish fish, and we also have this wonderful Japanese uh, seafood supplier. He's called he's from Wildlife Fresh Fish, and he also sources locally, mm. and he brings us fish that he's um, performed ikijime on. So, for example, black cod can be served as a sashimi or a sushi wow. dish because uh, it's taken care of properly. And that's not heard of in Japan. Like, you would never eat black cod as a sushi. Uh, let's expand Japan. Like, we started to expand that this is the best restaurant on the block. <laughs> right. And then we can say LA in the world. That is something you can't find in Japan. Right. Maybe all of uh, Asia. Maybe all of the... I mean, that is something I've never heard. Right. So that is one of the... That was one of the most amazing discoveries. And uh, we worked with people, like, local foragers as well. Uh, one local forager who brought us all these ingredients that were so new to us and like we never imagined using or incorporating that into Japanese cuisine but uh, we're able to find a way that using Japanese philosophy and the ideas and techniques but it was really hard because there's so many things that I realized that we depend on that are imported yeah so we had to make our own miso we had to make our own bonito and it was crazy it was really fun to learn yeah and, uh, and then really fun to go back and say, right. we are importing again. Right, like some things should just be brought in and we'll do whatever we can. But to better answer your question, we're looking forward to doing more themed menus where um, it follows an idea and then somehow tie it to... The whole idea for the theme menus to tie it to some sort of charity. So yes, I get to explore my creative ideas and, you know you know, force people to eat these ideas that I have, but at least it'll be beneficial on some level to society by being, contributing it to charitable work. Awesome. Well, I only have one more question for you. Okay. Um, I know you play guitar at home to relax. (laughs) Um, I do. And um, there was a quote from Chef's Table that I love that was, you know, when you talk about plating, there's a song in your head. Mm -hmm. What is that song? And are there any lyrics? Okay, the the songs all vary based on the mood that I'm in. And sometimes I don't know why, but there's 80s music going on in my head. Okay. Okay, uh, yes. Were you a child of the 80s? Yes. And there's, like, songs that are recent from, like, you know, like, there's, like, sometimes there's Adele, sometimes there's, um, sometimes there's Wham. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's Shalimar, sometimes there's like... A real, oh man, a real uh, Shalimar sashimi dish, right? Right, like, you know, sometimes there's like, um, 
Earth, Wind, and Fire. There's just a lot of things going on. Maybe a little September song. Yeah, when you're, when you're playing. there's Beatles too, and a little bit of Joe Cocker. I, this everything. Everything. Yeah. Well, Chef, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. <laughs> thank you for showing LA just amazing food day in day out, year in year out. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. It was of a lot course. Of fun. And if people want to find you online, are you on Instagram? I, our restaurant is. Okay. So it's at Ennaka Restaurant. Awesome. Um, and if people want to make reservations or come by, how far in advance? Right now we are opening our reservations three months out every Sunday morning well, at 10 a.m. People, it is worth the wait. <laughs> Thank uh, you. We have another live uh, recording from uh, the archives on Snacky Tunes and a live performance coming up next here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious fresh cheese curds, or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com, and as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. Welcome back. That was just a track from Mountain Animation, and earlier you heard from Johnny Lamb, two of our favorite performances from Snacky Tunes. We're live in the studio with Anique Monet. Welcome. Hi. And thank friends, you. lots of friends. <laughs> yeah. The name does not imply there are four other people. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Uh, normally, have people go around the room and say who they are. You want to shout it out who you are and what you're playing today? Or Anique, you, right, yeah, okay. you can do yeah. the intros. Sure. Uh, there's Daryl jo- Johns on drums, uh, Ben Seacrest on trumpet, Eamon Lebo on bass, and Monet Freeman on keyboard. Did you pick Monet because the name is it no? Actually, that was that was a Craigslist. Oh, really? There's two Craigslisters in this room. <laughs> is it Monet looking for Monet? Not not <laughs> yeah. art, not looking for art. She spells it differently, but okay. it was it was kind of a cool little serendipity moment <laughs> so you're from delray beach yeah south florida <laughs> south florida and you grew up playing covers with your dad right oh yeah yeah we um he used to have like uh gigs at like little places around like little like three hour things and we'd play uh i'd play the uke and sing along with him what did dad play uh he played the guitar was it like your kind of like south florida dive bar cover band or what was the no it was like my dad and i alone acoustic okay doing our little thing oh just like (laughs) father daughter time yeah totally that's pretty good Uh, and you did abba and fleetwood mac covers right yeah yeah well we did we did a like some a fleetwood mac and then there were other things but yeah we would sing uh abba songs and whatever that was a big what was it? What was the Fleetwood Mac song? Uh, landslide. Yeah, of course, <laughs> seems like the perfect like father daughter. Yeah, yeah. Especially after the live record where she dedicated to her dad. And yeah, like, yeah. This one's for you, daddy. This one's for you, daddy. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the one. Yeah, and you're like, you're like, hey, I got a song for us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and how did you graduate into writing your own music, or did dad kind of be like, no more covers, time to, <laughs> time to do your own? No. Write a song um, for me. Yeah, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, I don't know, I. I think it just it, I started doing it in high school and I was with another band um where it wasn't my music but then uh it was kind of funny I don't know I got there was a falling out with that band and then I got uh, I started doing my own thing and and then the label Beyond Beyond is Beyond heard uh Relapse which we're going to play today 
and they were like, let's do a record. <laughs> so, Did you reconcile with the band? Have you mended fences yet? Is it still? <laughs> or is, do I need to interview you 10 years from now that we finally patch it up? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay, fair enough. They're okay. Yeah, it's fine. Things are fine. So what brought you up to New York? Um, that music, and uh, I was going to go, well, I went to Parsons for a while, but it was like both music and art, and I just... Yep, I'm still here <laughs> doing oh. music and art. What type of community did you find up here? How did you begin to find your compatriots um, besides Craigslist? Yeah, Craigslist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I found um, – I started going to Smalls a lot, actually, and I uh, had For a lot of – For those who don't know Smalls. Smalls is a little uh, small <laughs> uh-huh. jazz venue. Uh, it's really cool. Actually, Ben works there and plays there a lot, and um, – I had some friends from high school that came up as well um, that went to the new school, which is part of Parsons, or Parsons is part of the new school, which is where I went as well. And um, that's how I found Smalls. And then, I don't know, you just, you meet one person and you meet the next person. And Daryl also (laughs) plays at Smalls pretty frequently. And it's just a very, uh, like, everybody's in everybody's band (laughs) kind of a deal. But it's really cool. And uh, everybody's really supportive of each other. And and how did you go about putting your band together, again, outside of Craigslist? Or what, um, it, what elements? Because on the first it, record, you played yeah. everything yourself. Yeah, it was just me and a MIDI keyboard and my uke and uh, my computer and just in my room in the dark. <laughs> but um, otherwise, I yeah, I had to find people. So I, I looked to Craigslist, but... Um, it was a bit of trial and error. Uh, there was in the beginning, I had uh, a drummer from Craigslist, and then I had a drummer from some. Uh, it was a girl or a boyfriend of a girl, uh, a girl that I worked with in American Apparel, and then I don't know. It's just like uh, people just come and go. But uh, stacking stacking shells, you're like, do you play anything? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. No, exactly. It's like, hey, I'm like getting my hair cut. Seriously, and I'm like, do you know anybody that plays drums? <laughs> I mean, it's amazing when you're just starting out in this city where you're just trying to, you're just throwing anything out there. Like, do you know people who are into music <laughs> at all? And like, I think I have a friend and then you yeah. begin to build your community around that. Totally. Yeah. It's really cool, actually, <laughs> how so, that works. And how did you end on this final incarnation? Is this the full incarnation? I know we're a small studio. The, yeah, this is the... We got everybody. Yeah, this is it. Okay. Yeah, we're all here. Everyone made it. Yeah. Yep. And how did you feel that this was the right mix of people to represent your music? I don't know. I mean, everybody just gels really well. And uh, I don't know. It feels, it just, it, you know, you feel it in your gut. (laughs) And you mentioned your record label, Beyond Beyond is Beyond. Yes. Which greatest record name of all time. (laughs) How did they found you? But um, they say that their record label is made up of dreamers, vagabonds, losers, and users. (laughs) Where do you fit within that spectrum? Dreamers. (laughs) Dreamers. Duh. Trick trick question, obviously. Yeah, no, no. I'm dreamy, dreaming. (laughs) And what is it that they found in you and you saw in them that you felt was the right home for your first record? Um... I think, geez, I, that's a, a tough question, actually. But um, I was I was in a band that was on their label already, so I already kind of knew them. And Dominique um, is one of the is the co-owner with Mike, and uh, I got dinner with her once, and we just we started like forming a little like she's kind of like a sister to me in a way. And um, I think they could hear. They, I don't know. They heard something in me that was like needed to be broken out and they gave me that chance to like fully come out. (laughs) 
mean, there's a lot of trust in, in putting your art into. You only get one release for that first time, right? So there's a lot of bands that have gone with labels that have, I don't want to say let them down, but maybe not delivered. No, it, it's a very like it was totally like fifty fifty. We're in this together, like, uh, yeah. It, <laughs> What's what is one thing that they did for you that you felt really gave you the extra kind of confidence or the next step to to put this out into the world? I mean, just like every time I'd send them a song, they were just on fire for it, and I, it made me feel so great. I mean, I, you know, and I'm like, cool. So let's keep going, and I'll send you another. And then we slowly put together the the album Phantom Letters, which I think we have a few tapes left hidden somewhere. <laughs> Can we hear a song? Yeah, let's let's do it. We'll play uh, nowhere. Live here on Snacky Tunes. You're not just a musician, but you do all your own visual for the band, too. 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like to make um, music videos and whatnot. <laughs> Most I'm, people will have their music inspire artists to do their work, so how do you create a loop that continues to evolve oh. and not just be pulling from the same sources? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, you know, speaking of the word dreamer, I, a lot of my art just comes from dreams that I have and sometimes I mean that feels like cheating because I just wake up and I'm like I'm gonna do that now <laughs> but um yeah I mean I just uh I take I pull from there and other things and you know make uh videos and music and pictures or whatever <laughs> I mean it's only cheating if you determined it that way okay okay it's not cheating I mean it was in my head I guess I I dreamt it just are you uh, wake up in the middle of the night and take notes, like notebook by the bed, or do you wait till the morning and hope you remember it? Um, it depends on how tired I am, <laughs> I guess. Sometimes I, if it's like a really like vivid thing where I'm like, I have to, have to wake up right now and write this down, then I'll do that. But sometimes I just, so I, I usually remember them and then I'm like, dad, I just had the weirdest dream last night. <laughs> He's like, make a video <laughs> and dedicate it to me. Yeah, right, right. And does the music itself sometimes lead from the the dreams, or is it always the dreams and music lead into the the visuals? Or how um, do the how does the ecosystem feed and evolve from each I, other? I don't I don't know. I mean, it's sometimes the music is like something that comes from like heartbreak or you know that kind of a cheesy <laughs> thing or just emotion, and then I think. I, I don't know. Somehow they, they end up melding together, but there's no, like, specific set way that I do it, you know. And as the project continues to evolve, you're starting to add new instruments and add new members. Yeah. How is that folding into the next steps in the career? Um, well, I really, like, this next album... Um, gonna be working on this year uh and finishing <laughs> finally but um using real instruments you know i mean i really really seriously love horns <laughs> i've found and um the last show that we played uh people really seemed to dig it as well and um yeah just collaborating with uh really talented musicians and friends and it's um you know i want more than just my own uh mind i like other people you know giving their ideas too with using the nords and the the midi controllers you kind of have open open game to any type of sound any type of uh creative there's no creative restraint right so adding in other people and adding in real instruments how do you feel that's affected the creative process uh and allowing other people to have part in the vision um, I think I don't. I mean, it's been it's been great. You know, uh, I I just if, if someone feels something and they're like, I think I think I'm gonna do it this way, <laughs> and then it, 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 sometimes it ends up sounding better. And I wish that I could like go back and re-record the other songs. But you know, yeah, it's it's cool. <laughs> and as the evolution of playing together with a larger band also affecting the final outcome of the upcoming record is it a living yeah thing? yeah because sometimes if you're i think this goes for anybody but if you're just like jamming on one thing and you keep going and going and going eventually someone's gonna do something different <laughs> and then sometimes it's like whoa actually that sounds really good let's remember that let's do that and how will you know that it's ready i mean evolution and creativity can always especially if you're pulling from a jazz background where improvisation <laughs> is such a big part of it how will you know that your songs are done, <laughs> especially if it's a new creative process? Um, 
I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, I just once everybody's nodding and like, yeah, this sounds great. <laughs> it's like everyone into this. Cool. Let's yeah. play for an audience. They're into it. Yeah. Done. Record. Right. <laughs> Can we hear another song? Yeah. Yes. Sure. This one is called Relapse and the start of uh, Phantom Letters. You know? <laughs> How it all began. <laughs> off of one of the most historic protests if not in the country in the world and your label beyond beyond is beyond because i just want to say it one more time <laughs> yeah. just came out with a compilation jamming the trump agenda a sonic fundraiser which might be the best concept yeah a, totally. sonic, a sonic fundraiser yeah uh you contributed a cover of jolene yes so <laughs> few questions to follow one what is the basic concept of the the record and who are they benefiting um yeah so they're all the proceeds for the album go to the aclu um and the sierra club and uh those are both just uh fighting for the preserve preservation and like protection of um the world and its inhabitants and like <laughs> yeah. you know and just basic good rights yeah right exactly yeah. which is a good thing which yeah. is a great thing <laughs> yeah and how did you pick jolene for the contribution <laughs> um it, it was it, 
to be honest, it was just a song that was stuck in my head for some reason. Like, and they just happened to ask me, "Hey, do you want to contribute to this?" And I was like, "Hell yeah!" <laughs> and um, yeah, Jolene, it was something that I kind of wanted to cover, anyways, and just kind of went for it. And who makes up the rest of the compilation? Oh, it's like all beyond artists. I don't. I couldn't even name all of them because it's it's just. <laughs> Every pretty much every single Beyond artist um, is on the compilation, which is really awesome. It's amazing to see all the different ways that people are contributing to uh, someone who is completely against their own ideals. <laughs> and I know that we said that we would not go into this, <laughs> which we won't. Yeah. But it's good to see that creativity seems to win out as you know, just focus your energy into this and a, right. a group project and making something new and showing that the arts has value, even though they are. In, consistently under attack and yeah. the threatening of loss of funding etc. No, it, it was really amazing and like refreshing to be a part of something that everybody could come together and make art for. <laughs> Where can people get it and how can they uh, contribute? Um, yeah, so if you go on to Beyond 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 uh, is Beyond, sorry. <laughs> you can find the album there and it's $10 but you can donate more if you'd like. And, yeah. and please <laughs> donate more. Yeah, it's please. like two beers and a shot of whiskey. <laughs> I, I even, I donated. <laughs> as you should. And if yeah. not, head over to ACLU or find a charity. Right, right. Instead of $5 a month, just yeah. easily deductible. But also, I mean, it's cool. I mean, you get music out of it too yeah. if you do the Beyond thing. So. <laughs> right. I mean, just anything helps. Right. So you mentioned the, the new record is being uh, currently written, and we can leave it at that, but any <laughs> other upcoming tours, plans, what's next? Yeah, we have a show tonight at the Bowery Electric, and uh, I think we go on around 10 p.m. And then um, next Sunday, we have a show at Bazaar Bushwick, not to be confused with the Brooklyn Bazaar or whatever. Oh, what's the difference? Or where's I that one? I don't know. There's like one of, I don't, I right. don't know. But Bazaar Bushwick, or Bazaar Bar, if you type in Bazaar <laughs> into Google Maps, it'll show. But B-A, not B-I. B- bizarre. Bizarre, sorry. Bizarre. Yes. Like, that's bizarre. Yeah. Crazy. Am I saying it weird? Yeah, well, anyway. Bazaar, whatever. Yeah, bizarre. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> anyway, yeah, um, next Sunday, too. And that one's going to be kind of crazy, because I think it's from, like, 9 to 4 a.m., and we're not playing from 9 to 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anique Monet. You know, uh, it's, like, uh, it's going to be a lot of fans, but it should be fun. <laughs> Each song with a 20-minute jazz outro. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, we want to make sure we get in time for one more song, but where can people find you, get the first record, uh, get updates for the upcoming record? Yeah, um, well, I'm on Facebook, Anique Monet, A-N-N-I-Q-U-E-M-O-N-E-T. And otherwise, you can get the album, Phantom Letters, um, on uh, Beyond Beyond is Beyond's Bandcamp. (laughs) And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. We want to thank Chef Nikki for being our food guest today. Please remember to stay strong, do something positive. Don't just think marching is an action. Take action. What's the name of the last song you're going to take us out with? Salt Veruca. Thank you so much. We will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Thank you for listening. Oh,
Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.